good morning, good night, and everything else in between. What's up guys, it's Denny. Let's get into the specials. Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey tweeted support for a Hong Kong anti-government protest over the weekend because that's where we are in 2019. Outrage being sparked over foreign policy tweets from a guy that thought giving a 33-year-old Chris Paul a four-year $160 million extension was his best chance at winning a title. The Barbie Corporation announced that it will be making a Judge Barbie. Global head of the company Lisa McKnight told USA Today that Barbie has now had over 200 careers. What she didn't mention is that Barbie still owes $100,000 on her student loans. Well guys, if you've ever seen the Tide Pod and said that looks tasty, the Glen Levette Company is releasing capsule-sized cocktails. This comes in the wake of the Tide Pod Challenge and a dad desperately trying to relate to his teenage son. My name is Danny Gallagher, and you are listening to Later. Live from New York. You are listening to the sometimes glamorous, always cantankerous, borderline magnanimous audio art of the new James Brown. Move over, Charlie Brown. There's a new kid in town. Whether it's 5 o'clock while you are or not, you better take your shot because a later Friday big show is coming in hot. Welcome on into the show. This is later. My name is Danny Gallagher. Thank you so much for tuning in. How's it going today? Before we get into anything else, let's set the table. On the show today, LA Times Hall of Fame NFL writer, Sam Farmer. That's right, he's here. Or I went to him, but he's on this show. So I guess it all kind of makes sense. Had a phenomenal conversation with Sam about his career, growing up in LA, And just overall great stuff there. And then coming later in the week and next week and just over the course of time in general, me and him, Uber Confessions on the Ball and Chain podcast. You do not want to miss that. That was hilarious. It was great stuff. Great afternoon. I thought I was only going there for a little bit. And he was just phenomenal with everything. So Sam Farmer, great guy, coming up in a little bit. But first, let's get into our song of the day. So not to waste any time before we get to the Hall of Famer himself, Sam Farmer. But we're going to kick it a little older today on the song of the day. Just because it came came across the timeline and it felt good. It felt good for the vibe of the interview. felt good for the vibe of this particular show. So coming up on the other side of our song of the day, which, by the way, is Her Love Is Killing Me. By Huey Lewis in the news. Come Sam Farmer. So it's you, me, Huey, Sam Farmer, all coming up, and you are listening to later. Let me take you back a little bit. Yeah. My dad was with IBM, okay, and my dad's a physicist. He got his PhD at University of Wisconsin. And so he uh, I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. So we moved from Madison. My dad went to IBM. We lived in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and we were there until I was in, uh, till I finished second grade. Then we moved to Northern California, and I was there for third and fourth grade. Then we moved to Boulder, Colorado, mm-hmm. um, and I was there from fourth grade through halfway through my eighth grade year. And then we moved to Los Angeles. 
and my dad came to Xerox. And um, so I went to high school and college in L.A. I went to La Cunada High School, and then I went to Occidental College. Um, graduated in 1988 from college, and I worked for a couple of years. Um, by the way, this is my cushion squeaking here, just to, <laughs> just to clarify. Uh, uh and my dog whining in the background. I mean, this is like a, uh, a circus. Um, and I worked two years at the LA Times. And I was a, you know, I went to college wanting to be a doctor. And um, I realized pretty early on that that required going to class. And so I figured out, <laughs> I didn't realize that would entail, you didn't mention going to class. So, uh, um so, uh, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of liked to write. I thought maybe I'll be an English teacher or something. And and uh, But I loved sports. And I was sort of a failed athlete in <laughs> high school. As is everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as uh, I was on the football team. And, and uh, uh, my brother liked to say I, I started both ways on the football team. I was uh, – uh, Defensive excuses and offensive remarks. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so and I played basketball too. So, uh, uh, but I love sports. I, I just love love sports. You know, I snuck into the Super Bowl mm. in, in 1983, and that was like a big deal for me. But we used to sneak into Lakers games too. I snuck into the NBA Finals when the Lakers played the played the 76ers. Um, the the Famous uh, Moses Malone four 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 or four four four, but I think it went four five four um, for the, for the Sixers. But uh, I snuck in. There were four of us. We used to go around to the forum and we knock on on doors at the forum. And uh, when somebody would pop open a door, uh, we'd have twenty bucks in our hand, and and one just one of us would snap a $20 bill and we the three of us would hide behind the door and this guy just thought he was letting one person in for 20 bucks which at the time 20 bucks was pretty sweet mm -hmm. I mean and so he'd motion us in and then we just we'd uh, bum rush the gate and <laughs> four of us would hop in and and uh, uh, I remember going to that particular series and it was the last game when the Lakers got swept and my friend Kevin and I um sat in seats at the forum where they had waitresses come and bring you food. And we were so, that was such a novel thing at the time. And uh, the only thing I remember about that is Kevin complaining to one of the waitresses about our seat that we'd gotten in, you know, on average we'd paid five bucks a person to get in. And now he was complaining about our seat, which we of course didn't have tickets to. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so I was big on, we, and we snuck into movies too. That was our big thing, like sneaking into theaters. And it was like, it was just the act of sneaking in made the movie better. You know, it was just, that's what was really the exciting part. And I remember sneaking into man's Chinese theater, which was the, and we could never just, you know, slip past a, an usher. It wasn't like that. No, we had to pick. The very, uh, you know, difficult and sometimes life-threatening, dangerous ways to get in. So we found a back uh, 
fire um, fire escape that ran up the back of Grauman's Chinese Theaters, now Man's Chinese Theater. I'm not sure who owns it now, but it's the one with the footprints in the mm. cement um, on Hollywood Boulevard. And I remember it was a James Bond movie. It might have been Octopussy or something because it was... Oh, no. The movie itself was Terminator, but which is a good movie. Mm. But... Uh, they were the trailer was for a James Bond movie because that was playing in the background as we've come through the door now behind the screen, and you have that dun 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 and it's just pitch black, and I'm walking on a gangplank behind the screen, climbing down this scaffolding behind the screen, and then crawling under the screen to go to my seat, and. Uh, to that James Bond music, it was awesome. No matter, I mean, we could have seen Howard the Duck in order to the best movie I've ever seen because of the way this thing started. And I remember we were at another theater, Hastings Ranch in Pasadena. We'd snuck in. This time we had to come across the roof of the theater and then down through a door that we got open and there were like eight of us. And four of us had gotten in and... We had a matchbook in the door, keeping it propped open for the other four. And just um, as sort of a prank, we got, the four of us got through and we pulled that matchbook out. And so the <laughs> door locked behind us. So then we went down and got in the theater and we're in there watching the trailers and you hear this, these footsteps coming across the roof of the theater. You can just hear it. If you listen for it, you could hear it. And then you hear, on the door. And then these slow, dejected footsteps walking back across the roof of the theater. And we were howling. So it was, it was all about sneaking in for us and, and uh, what we could get into, what we could, uh, uh, you know, uh, what I, I remember... The 1987 football season must have been the 88, early 88 Super Bowl, which was Redskins Broncos in San Diego. We got down to the Redskins Team Hotel, which is a Hyatt in downtown San Diego. And we had to get through an area where I had to have a necktie on. <laughs> and so I remember taking off my belt and fashioning this horrible web belt necktie <laughs> with my belt but uh whatever you have to do you know you just uh you've got to improvise in those situations i would imagine if you were a young kid today you would be a you would be a youtuber with millions of followers because that's all anyone tries to do on youtube is just break into places yeah like and security's I, gotten yeah, so much yeah. such, so much tighter um I remember, and I love the folks down at the Rose Bowl, but I remember cutting a hole in the fence at the Rose Bowl. <laughs> this was like three nights before the Rose Bowl game. Going down, we had a fluorescent orange regulation football and playing with my buddies on the Rose Bowl field that was painted for the game <laughs> <laughs> in, only by moonlight, by moonlight, and a hole that we had cut in the fence and rolled through this hole and then went down onto the field and played football. And we used to play tackle football. That was our thing with, you know, like Park League kind of. Mm. Um, and I remember just like 
I, you know, in my mind's eye, I remember making some great tackles on the Rose Bowl field, but I'm sure they were they were sort of ungainly, uh, you know, uh, awkward tackles. But still, we were down on the grass, the Rose Bowl. So I actually played in the Rose Bowl. I can tell people that. <laughs> and, and I'm sure you've told this story a million times. Breaking into the Super Bowl, I'm sure security was a lot more lax then. Yes, but how does it that was. Happen? So um, there was a kid... Uh, uh, named I was a huge Redskins fan, mm. huge Redskins fan. Why? And Just... obsessed. I mean, we had lived in Maryland, mm. um, and when I was a young kid, I liked the Redskins, as did my older brother, and then my middle brother liked the Baltimore Colts. And um, uh, but I wasn't really wedded to the Redskins. I liked the Orioles. I mm. really cared about the Orioles. And uh, then in that '82 strike season, when the Redskins wound up winning that Super Bowl, I just got really into the team. And I was um, I just, you know, I just, it, it, I became fascinated with it. Mm. So, uh, and and I draw plays in class, et cetera. And uh, so there was a kid named Ron Walton, and they lived in Colorado, but he was a huge Redskins fan too. And I had friends who had worked Rose Bowl games for Servomation, which was the uh, concessionaire at the Rose Bowl. And they told me about how easy it was to, you know, come, even if you didn't, Servomation hadn't hired you, to just grab one of the fake names and come in. And um, and so I s- said, well, do you think we do that for the Super Bowl? They said, well, we're working the Super Bowl. You come down at, I mean, or... We're getting into the Super Bowl that way. <laughs> All you had to do is penetrate that first fence. Mm. And so I told, I promised, as I was a junior in high school, I promised Ron Walton that I'd get him into the Super Bowl. <laughs> and this guy flew out with his family from Colorado on my promise that I'd get him into the Super Bowl. So there was serious, serious pressure on me to do this. So we went um, we went down at nine in the morning and you're supposed to wear a white shirt and a, a dark pants and dress shoes. Uh, and um, this is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, and I had my, I had a John Riggins jersey under my white shirt, but it was like one that I had made myself. I mean, it wasn't even like a, it's like a maroon shirt I got and then I got 44 iron-on decals on it, and it said Riggins across the back. Um, so it was, it was cheese ball, but I had it under my white shirt. So uh, my friends John and Scott, and then Ron, who was the guy I promised to get in, um, we waited around until um, you heard names that weren't being called. And if I recall, it was a Hispanic name that it was called and I waited until it was called three times and nobody answered. And then I answered to it, you know, <laughs> it's like, this is, and then, so we uh, that didn't even, in the end, we didn't even need to wait for names because it was so haphazard. We all just formed a line, single file line and went through the fence and they were getting, the line was getting led off to the right. And the four of us peeled off to the left and went, um, our own ways, two and two, because we figured, well, you know, two of us will get, if one gets caught or whatever, we just have better odds to, to separate. So Ron and I went into the bathroom, uh, into one of these Rose Bowl bathrooms, and this was before the renovation. It was this old bathroom, and I, I thought, I'll just stay here all until they start letting the crowds in. 
But I was in there for 10 minutes. I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> By this point, I've taken off my white Oxford shirt. That was my dad's shirt. And I stuffed it up in the rafters of the, the bathroom. And I came out of the bathroom with Ron. And now we're just walking around and people are setting up their concession stands around the Rose Bowl. And we went in, it had rained the night before, and so they were bringing a helicopter down in the field to blow the water off of it, uh, down you know within 10 feet of the turf to blow the water off of it. And a guy was setting up on top of one of the tunnels, there was a UPI photographer who was setting up all his gear. And so we went in and started talking, and I said, yeah, my dad's a, got a concession stand, and we were helping him, and he said, well, hey, if you guys wanna watch my stuff, I wanna go get some lunch. I said, yeah, no problem. So we sat there and had an official job. Uh, and we thought, oh, well, John and Scott got tossed. No, no, no worries. We're in. And then we see this from the other side of the stadium. We see this group of look to be pretty girls walking into the stadium. And uh, uh, they were testing the PA system. And you could just see they were, you know, they had long hair, flowing hair, and you could see from a distance. And uh, the PA announcer said, Miami Dolphins cheerleaders, can you hear us? Can you hear me? And they all stood up and they're like, yay, we can hear you. And right in the middle were John and Scott in the middle of the Miami Dolphins cheerleaders. So I'm like, how'd they get that gig? They had a better gig than we had. And they were bench, it was bench seating at the Rose Bowl at the time. So when the game started, Ron and I split up. And we each found the nub end of the be of benches. And I happened to be like at the 40-yard line, uh, right where John Riggins broke off on his famous run. And uh, uh, I just made friends with everybody around me just so they remembered me. I could go get something to eat or whatever. And I'd be, um, I'd be, oh, they'd say, oh, Sam, you know, come back or whatever. So I, uh, it was great. It was terrific. Now, all that said, the next week in Sports Illustrated, uh, out came a shot of, I think it was, uh, excuse me, um, somebody scoring a touchdown. Um, it might have been Alvin, Alvin, I forget his name. <laughs> anyway, in the background are my friends Kevin and Matt down celebrating in the background of this shot you can see them i mean if you if you knew them you could say wait that's callahan and flint and um now remind me to tell you about callahan and flint story so uh kevin and matt are there celebrating and i said how'd you guys get in they said well we came at game time Gave a guy 20 bucks. He pushed his servomation badge through the fence, and we just walked in. So I, I thought I had the best game going, but I, had, I, I was bested by my buddies. Now, Callahan and Flynn, I got, just got to tell you, Matt, Matt and Kevin, uh, they were two of my closest friends in high school. And, but they were always pulling some, uh, you know, antics. And, and uh, um, you know, not always like, the brightest antics and some, you know, they wanted to get, they wanted to get IDs, mm. not to, not to drink, uh, but to, so we could go to Vegas. Mm. We wanted to be in the casinos, right? So, so they came up with these names. Uh, 
they they said back then you can get a California state ID, which looked just like a driver's license. This is terrible. I'm saying this, but it looked just like a driver's <laughs> license by saying you lost all your identification in a fire. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know how this. But anyway, it was a uh, Flynn, uh, Flynn and Callahan. And so the names they picked for their IDs were. Let's see. It was Nick. It was Jim Bond, Jim <laughs> Bond, not James on your life. You got Jim Bond and Nick Mark Lamborghini. Okay. <laughs> okay. So they met Jim Bond and Nick Mark Lamborghini. So they were uh, at the DMV and they're waiting around and waiting and waiting as you do at the DMV, waiting. And finally, they get so frustrated. Kevin goes up to the counter. He says, do you have those those California state IDs ready? She said, what was the name? And, and he said, uh, Flynn and Callahan. <laughs> and then he realized that she looks around, he realizes that is a mistake. And he says, how about Bond and Lamborghini? <laughs> so we were always, we always had some sort of, you know, we're running some kind of game. So it was, uh, it was fun. So I always think about that. And I think about coming down on my kids for high school stuff, <laughs> thinking, I never did that kind of stuff. Well, you know. <laughs> how much did that kind of schmoozing when you got into journalism teach you with, like, like sources and, like, how to, like, get to know people, you know kind of that's, bond? That's a great question because I think it's it's you have to pretend like you belong places. Uh, a lot of times... You have to play the game and you have to, you know, you might be told, hey, you know, all within the bounds of ethics, but mm. you might be told, hey, stand over here. But no, I got to get that guy over <laughs> there. Um, I didn't hear you say stand over here. I got to <laughs> go do what I. So a lot of times you got to fake it till you make mm. it uh, um, and can't be. You, you can't take no for an answer mm. in a lot of situations. Um, so that, that does help you. Um, and being able to schmooze a little bit and do things with confidence. And, and it's interesting because, like, I was never Mr. Walk up to you in a bar and, mm. you know, strike up a conversation <laughs> or whatever. But when you're wearing your journalist hat, <laughs> you have to mm. uh, go and put yourself in awkward situations and say, excuse me, you know, I'm, I'm blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm working for blah, 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 blah. And I'm working on this. And, and a lot of times you'll get the, the stiff arm, but you've got to sort of set aside any sort of inhibition you might have <laughs> and just do it like you're running into a fire. And, you know, um, it's not that it's heroic. It's just that it's every better impulse that you has says don't do don't it. do yeah. it but it's it's uh fight or flight and you gotta <laughs> fight sometimes and, and and do something that you don't feel comfortable with it's gotta be crazy for you uh having in your formative years you were sneaking into the forum and now they're making that entire time of the lakers an hbo show i mean like that's gotta be pretty nuts for you right i mean yeah. like you lived it it is it <laughs> is weird it's um uh, uh, you know to see to think about that, to see that how quickly time passes and how um, 
you know, I still get very nostalgic when I when I it almost brings tears to my eyes listening to the intros, the CBS intros for the NBA finals, the Lakers Celtics finals. And you can draw that dial that stuff up on YouTube. And uh, it still stirs this passion like deep within me um, where that. The years of sports writing, you know, people say sports writing kills the fan in you. Um, even the layered years of sports writing haven't completely occluded that part of me that just, um, you know, it just, it brings me back to what got me into this in the first place and that just raw excitement I felt. And I, and I feel it with, you know, uh, NBA Finals music or the NFL um, on CBS music <laughs> or Monday, old Monday Night Football music. And um, it sort of taps into this uh, almost primitive um, uh, well of excitement. Yeah. yeah. So let's bring it back to then. Do you, do you remember the first moment where sports made you feel to like the highest of highs? Yeah, I remember, and uh, the thing that really, I, I loved the Redskins. I, I was, it was, um, it, you know, I had I had my share of lowest of lows. Mm. Uh, the, the Orioles losing to the Pirates in the 79 series. Um, but, and then the Redskins winning the Super Bowl was awesome and everything, but nothing got to me quite like Lakers-Celtics and um, the the love I had for the Lakers. And, um, you know, I just remember when they finally beat the Celtics and they beat them in Boston. And uh, I think that was the series that they lost. It was the Memorial Day Massacre or something. <laughs> they lost the first game. I, I seem to remember... Uh, was it Scott Wedman? Maybe he was perfect from beyond three point. I mean, back then a three point shot was kind of an exotic. You'd mm. have this, you know, Connor Henry, or you'd have a um, Michael Cooper could make a three pointer. So it was a, like a big deal if a guy was a three point shooter. <laughs> um, but I just remember Bill Burke of the Lakers saying, on the parquet floor, <laughs> on the parquet floor, we did it on the parquet floor, champagne going everywhere. <laughs> And, um, you know, that to me was the pinnacle of I cared so deeply and it was good to have those losses beforehand because then you realize <laughs> how fun it is to have your team win. And uh, it's funny now when I run into on the rare occasion, I'll run into James Worthy or Magic Johnson or I did a story with Kurt Rambis um, that st- childhood excitement and fascination mm. that I feel. I mean, I could meet, even I could meet Michael Jordan now or Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or any of these, Roger Federer, or any of these iconic people that I met throughout the course of my career and it would never have the same effect on me uh, as I, as meeting, you know, meeting James Worthy mm. because that was a guy I idolized. And I remember relaying that to Joe Theismann because I felt that way about Theismann too. Uh, you know, that was my quarterback, <laughs> Theismann. And he said, you know, I felt the same way about Joe Namath. He said, meeting Joe Namath for me was really, really special. But I remember my 
senior year of college, I went to Occidental College, but there was an exchange program with American University uh, where I spent a semester in D.C., a journalism semester, mm. and I worked for the George Michael Sports Machine. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, I remember another guy on a the same semester, although uh, his wasn't journalism, he was working for a law firm, and a member of the firm was friends with Joe Theismann. And so Kevin... This guy said, we're going to Joe Theismann's house to watch Wittenberg-Baldwin-Wallace, the Wittenberg-Baldwin-Wallace game. And this guy, Kevin, had played basketball for Wittenberg. And I thought, well, that's strange. Theismann watching Wittenberg-Baldwin-Wallace? I mean, what was it? But you're going to Joe Theismann? Are you kidding? You're going to Joe? <laughs> I'll do anything. What do you need me to do? I want to go to Joe Theismann, Theismann's house. Um, and... Uh, uh, by this point, Theismann had retired because he had broken his leg. And uh, this was 1987, late 87, fall of 87. But um, again, it was a strike year. And the Redskins would go on to win the Super Bowl that year when they beat Denver after at the end of that season. But uh, finally, Kevin said, you can go with me to Joe Theismann's house. So that was the biggest thrill. I mean, I'm a senior in college. I'm going to Joe Theismann's house. I'm thinking about it all week. <laughs> so we have to wait around for an hour. We get uh, on, a, on a Saturday morning, we get picked up. I had to take the metro to this place. Then we wait for an hour. Somebody came and picked us up in their car. Drove for an hour into Virginia. And I had bought a new shirt, so I had a fresh, brand new button-down shirt and uh, slacks on, and I was just so excited. I thought, you know, Kathy Lee was gonna, Kathy Lee Crosby, who was wife at the time, was gonna probably be making us lunch. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> not that I, that sounds kind of sexist, but I thought, hey, this is gonna be just an incredible experience. And so we stopped after about an hour and pulled in this parking lot, and the guys get out of the car, and I look up, and we're at a restaurant called Joe Theismann's. And it was devastating. And I, I said, are we going to Theismann's house? They said, no, no, we're watching the Wittenberg Ball Wallace game at Joe Theismann's, at a restaurant part of his chain. And in fairness, Joe Theismann had visited that restaurant once to cut the ribbon on it. <laughs> shirt and oh everything to sit in the back of this restaurant and have a $12 Monte Cristo sandwich and watch a football <laughs> game I, I could care less about <laughs> could not care less about uh and so I watched and so I drove you know we had to ride an hour and I it was just dejected driving home thinking you told me that we were going to Joe Theismann's house <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah. So what was working on the George I'd Michael my Sports Family? Oh, I'd call my family, told them I was going to Theismann's house, <laughs> and then you had to come home and be like, "Oh, it yeah. was a restaurant." Oh my! Oh gosh. my gosh! What a letdown! So, yeah, Theismann's. I mean, uh, uh, George Michael Sports Machine was totally stressful for me because George Michael and Pat Lackman, his wife, would always scream at each other. And George would just scream at the interns. Now, I know there are, are uh, 
I have good friends who have come through there. Bonnie Bernstein was uh, uh, an intern there, and and uh, you know various people in the in the business um, who are uh, uh, good friends of mine. But it was totally stressful for me. I mean, it was neat, it was cool, and I I thought uh, this is exciting seeing behind the scenes of the sports machine, um, but. I, you know, I was stressed out all the time. You know, I was watching games and, and um, charting games, you mm. know, where you watch the game and you pick out, okay, at this moment they're showing, um, you know, Fernando Valenzuela's face at <laughs> this specific time. And, and here's another. So I, I learned that some of those highlights might be uh, you show the pitcher on the mound in the third inning and then show them the, throwing the pitch in the sixth inning and show the batter's face from the first inning. And mm. they'd cobble together this stuff to make a complete mm. picture of a certain play. Um, so I learned cool stuff. But I was... Uh, um, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that much fun for me. But I went on from that. Because I was like, okay, this, uh, you know, I've seen this. I don't, I don't love it. I went on to a place called American News Bureau. Where... Um, I worked on the hill and would go out as a field producer and help on these shots. And this was like if if the there was something going on on the hill related to the city of San Diego, um, you would call this freelance near you know, and you're a news station in San Diego. You'd say, okay, a senator spoke about something that's that's important to us. We're going to call American News Bureau. We're going to give them a mic flag from our station. They'll send a reporter out to do a story on Capitol Hill as if we sent a reporter there. Mm. And so I got to do all sorts of stuff. I mean, I got to I got to go to the White House. That was the <laughs> big thing. They said, one time you'll get to go to the White House. And uh, so I went, and Reagan was president. And I went in, and it was cool being in the white house press room but there was a pool reporter for this event and it was james burnley was being sworn in as the secretary of transportation and um so uh it was just a pool reporter so so they said they called the pool reporter and this is one of those instances where you sort of have to uh, just fake it till you make it. Yeah. I walked in with the pool reporter and I, and it was in the Roosevelt room. And so now I'm walking, I got turned around, I'm walking the halls of the white house, <laughs> unaccompanied, lost, looking for the Roosevelt room. Now I didn't get very far. I mean, I could kind of see where it was headed, mm. but, and I was not shepherded by anyone. And, um, uh, I was unauthorized. I was not, they didn't say, pool reporter and the intern from American <laughs> News Bureau. So I went into this little room and it's like friends and family of James Burnley. And it's a small room. It was like our living room or, you know, it was maybe a little bit bigger, but it was small cameras in the back um, and a pool reporter there watching. And, and I was there too. And so when the thing, and, and President Reagan came right in, into the room, swore the guy in and then disappeared 
And so I was, he was 20 feet away from me. And um, it was kind of surreal. And his family got up and went into another room where they had like wine and cheese, champagne <laughs> or whatever. So I just followed the family. So I walked into this room. And it's James Burnley's family and friends and Sam Farmer, a senior at American <laughs> University in this room. And I congratulated him. And I said, hey, could you meet me out in the little turnaround there in front of the whatever it is east wing or whatever mm. the wherever the press room is um so we can talk to you and he said sure he was really nice i gave him a little note with the uh the information and then i don't remember all i remember is being back outside so i'm not sure how i got out <laughs> or whatever how i sort of uh untangled myself from that situation but i was out there and here he comes out, and I grab the microphone off our camera, and I walk over to him. He sort of makes a beeline for me. And then there are 10 cameras that come oh. off, and now I'm the only reporter, and I've got the Secretary of Transportation. I don't, I, I don't know what to ask him. And I'm, you know, here I am, a senior in college. I've, taken it, I've gotten all the way to the goal line. And I realized I don't have a play. <laughs> so, so by my recollection, my question was, how about them trains? <laughs> and he gave, me, he gave me a somewhat, you know, initial look of confusion, but then a somewhat coherent answer about train travel. And I could see the camera's, slowly peeling off and peeling away from me realizing <laughs> realizing this guy didn't know what he's talking about <laughs> yeah so that was my uh that was my american news bureau experience but it was terrific i mean it was uh i remember being there was, it was right there uh near the train station on capitol hill and we had this beautiful classic iconic view of the the dome right behind us and that's where we do our stand-ups and i remember a homeless guy coming up you know you could hear there was a suitcase with a radio in it there, <laughs> where they'd say you know 10 seconds till we're live you know we're a minute we're live in a minute i remember a guy coming up to us and saying five bucks or i start screaming <laughs> <laughs> and they had to sort of usher him away oh but yeah we were about to go live in Kansas City or something. <laughs> Some guy was going to start screaming in the background. So, that, was, so, that was quite a gig he had going. So how much did putting together uh, those highlights, those news stories for TV impact your writing when you started doing that? Uh, that was, um, you know, I think it, it did help. Um, I had done a little bit of uh, writing beforehand and, and before I got the internship at George Michael's sports machine I had worked um, at the LA Times and what had happened was my friend Gary Klein who now covers the Rams uh, had gotten a job stringing high school football games at the LA Times and get 50 bucks on a Friday night to go out and cover a high school football game write five paragraphs on it excuse me and get a LA Times byline or a little tagline with hmm. Gary Klein on it. It's fascinating to me. It was a very robust operation at the time. And so we had 50 stringers go out there and cover games in the San Fernando Valley edition of the Times. And so 
I was able to um, write a little Redskin story. They read it and they said, sure, come out and string a game. We're going to give you a North Hollywood High girls basketball game. And that's your first game. And so it was, look, it was a 3 o'clock tip, 3.30 tip or something. And so I wasn't in any danger of missing deadline, which was around 10 o'clock at night. Mm. Um, and I, look, it's a high school girls basketball game. They wanted probably five paragraphs mm. on it, tops. So I went, I put on a three-piece suit. I went and sat in the stand, which it, I haven't worn before, uh, before or since. <laughs> went and sat in the stands. And because I was in college, I fell asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep in the second half. I woke up to the final buzzer. Bleary-eyed, went down, got some unintelligible quotes from the coaches involved, scribbled them, wasn't able to read my scribble later, took down, went to the scorer's table, got the individual scoring of the teams, went back to the LA Times office. I had left the oil cap off my car, <laughs> so I... My car kept stalling at stop signs for some reason. I don't know why. But opened up the hood of my car. Now I was fiddling around with the oil cap. I get oil on my suit. Now I've got oil on my hands and my face and my, my suit. I'm, my hair's disheveled. You know, I fall, slept through the half of a high school basketball game. I show up there, I stare at a blank screen for three hours <laughs> and realize that my individual scoring doesn't add up to the final score. But that's okay, because parents generally don't care if you get their kids scoring correctly. <laughs> it's like the most important thing. All they care about is that you got their, their the bucket that their kid had. Yeah, but of course, I don't have that. And it's not in an age of cell phones, so... Mm. You know, who's going to know? Who, yeah. yeah or, or how can I get a hold of the coach <laughs> right. or the coach is out to dinner with his team or whatever. Mm. So I'm kind of screwed. I write the story in the format of in the first quarter, comma, in the second quarter, comma, in the third quarter, comma, in the fourth quarter, comma, final score, which is breaking all the rules <laughs> of what you're supposed to do. And it comes out in the morning looking nothing like what I wrote. They completely rewrote the thing. And they basically said, don't call us, we'll call you. And I thought, now that set the hook for me. You know, now it's okay, this is a challenge. I can do this. I can. So I started writing these Thursday features. I'd find the quirky Thursday feature, the 100-year-old swimmer, or I found a five-year-old. The first story I wrote was a five-year-old black belt. Um which I thought was so cool until I had kids and I realized that you just kind of buy your way through those belts. <laughs> <laughs> You're just, they'll test you on whatever belt you want. Just pay a hundred bucks. And, uh, uh, but anyway, so, uh, so I did this, this karate kid story and it was only these features were like nine or 10 inches. So basically, um, and they take me three days to mm. write. It's basically something I could write in 15 minutes right now mm. because just because you get used to it. And, mm. But so one of the early stories I did was on a I, I sort of would always look for the ironic story. And this was on a Beverly Hills uh, 
orthopedic surgeon who raced cars. And I thought, well, here we got a guy who's risking life and limb, who fixes life and limb every week. So I went to his office in Beverly Hills and I had my boombox recorder <laughs> and my suit on and, and uh, sat down in his office. And he was probably just as nervous as I was because the LA Times was coming <laughs> to interview him. And I thought, here I am in this Beverly Hills office and this, and, um, and the guy called up for lunch. So we're eating lunch and he got a Cobb salad and we're eating lunch in these chairs with our plates on our legs and we're talking and he sort of jostles a little bit and his plate, his Cobb salad flips over right <laughs> onto my feet. <laughs> and so I got all this blue cheese and blue cheese dressing and everything in my, in my wingtips and this million dollar a year Beverly Hills orthopedic surgeon is down on his hands and knees cleaning out the holes of my wingtips with his napkin and I thought I could get used to this job <laughs> this guy this guy is giving me the royal treatment here buffing my shoes out and he's this Beverly Hills doctor so I remember thinking hmm I could wield some power with this job <laughs> yeah so uh, but yeah, I, I I think it's all part of the the mosaic of how I, um, you know, love stories and really love to have written. As they say, I don't love writing; I love to have written, mm. just to be done with it. But um, and then a love of sports. Um, so is it, this whole story along the same time? Is this while you're still in college, or, or is this oh, just so this out was of college? All, this was all while I'm a senior in college, right. right before, oh no, I'm sorry, my junior year of college during the spring, leading into that internship, which was the first half of my senior mm -hmm. year of, um, of college. And then when I got home from the sports machine internship, I remember I didn't, you know, I had these great internships, but I didn't really go to class, um, in college, you know, I went to a few of my classes and uh, I remember I came back and I got this LA Times internship and, um, you know, I really spent that time in the fall on my internships. I didn't, wasn't probably as studious as I should have been at American. And I came back and sure enough, mid-January, I get a letter from American and I thought, well, now here we go. Um, the jig is up. My parents are going to know that, you know, I wasted this. I'm probably going to have to retake classes or something. And I opened the letter and said, congratulations, you have made the dean's list. <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can we alert your local paper? And I said, you know, if I'd gone here all four years, I'd probably be a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> but I had an internship in that fall. And then that, uh, I parlayed that into a, a desk assistantship uh, where I covered stuff and I also answered phones at the times and worked that until the summer of 1990 when I got a job. But I remember I was telling this the other day, recalling one of the, uh, one of the phone calls I took from a high school football coach and he was telling me about his, his sophomore quarterback who had thrown three interceptions in the first half of his high school debut and had three fumbles in the second half. And I remember tell, saying to him, as I'm taking notes on the game, I said, well, um, 
it sounds like he was pretty wound up. And the guy said, oh, yeah, this is the high school coach. He said, he was so tight, you couldn't pull a needle out of his ass with a tractor. And then there's a long pause, and he says, don't use ass, use butt. (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah. I'm sure the parents will find that much better when they see that that the coach has said, yes, look, honey, your coach said you couldn't pull a needle out of your butt with a tractor. Yeah, so lots of funny memories. Uh, funny memories covering those things, and that was fun times. Went up to Washington, mm-hmm. covered University of Washington for a couple of seasons, wrote a book on the University of Washington program. Yeah, why? When why, it, why did you decide to write? Because well, there's a lot of programs. Huh? Outside of the right. fact that you probably had, a, had really good access, right? Yeah, well, they had won. Um, they were going for their second consecutive national championship. Right. So they, So they won the national championship that they shared with Miami, and then they were off to a great start. And uh, Sagamore Publishing had come to um, Dan Rayley, who was a uh, much more experienced beat writer from the Seattle PI. I was working for a small paper and said, can you write a book on um, the Huskies' bid for a second national championship? And at this time, the Billy Joe Hobart story had just broken. Mm. Billy Joe Hobart was the quarterback of the team at the time who had taken a $50,000 loan from a booster. And the story that the Seattle Times broke uh, was starting to sort of, um, the, the program was unraveling. And Dan said, I, I'm working on this other story. Um, I don't have time to write a second national championship book, but I do know a guy who would. And uh, so he very generously gave me that. Uh, they called me about writing the book. And now the story compl- changed completely. It had gone from back-to-back national championships to this program is going to be put on probation. And uh, so I wrote that book, and it was called Bitter Roses. You can find it at the bottom <laughs> of a any a bargain basement uh, bin. Um, the hand on the book is, is clutching a, uh, is taped up. It's a football hand clutching a bouquet of roses wrapped in newspapers of all the scandalous stories. And uh, if you knew me, you might recognize the hand because it was my hand that they took <laughs> a picture of it uh, rubbed in dirt. And uh, so, yeah, that, 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 uh, I probably told you the stories of me at, at selling books, but uh, um, you know, here this is book on the Husky football program. The Huskies at the time were as popular as the Seahawks. I mean, that was a big, mm. very, very popular team. And I'm in a B Dalton. It's the first week, and their books released, and and uh, I'm in there for a book signing, and I'm just you know walled in by these stacks of of my book, and. Um, people are walking by me. I mean, it's like Girl from Ipanema is playing. Nobody's looking at me, you know, and I'm, I'm there to sign books, and, and they're not driving any traffic. And finally, a couple of women come over to the table, and I grab a book off the top of the shelf, on uh, top of the pile, and I, said, I open it up ready to sign, and I said, are you guys Husky fans? And they said, no, you're blocking the cat calendars. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then right down the road at that point, a guy is starting the biggest bookseller in the world. That's crazy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So uh, it was quite, quite humbling. I remember uh, doing lots of radio interviews, but one was in Salt Lake City, and, and I'm on this interview, and they said, we've got Sam Farmer, author of Bitter Roses, The Rise and Fall of the University of Washington football program. Sam Farmer's on the line. All eyes are open. All lines are open for Sam Farmer. 1-800-blah-blah-blah. All lines are open. All lines are open for Sam oh, Farmer. No. Okay, Sam, tell us a little more about the book. And so I told they'd say, all lines are open. We got a caller. We got a caller. It's D from Provo. Put <laughs> him on. They said... And they just recently changed to an all-sports format at the mm. station. And I remember the guy got on, and he's, they said, do you have a question for Sam Farmer, uh, author of Bitter Roses, The Rise and Fall of the Washington Husky Football Program? And he says, no, I don't have a question for him. What happened to my music? We don't need another <laughs> chit-chat station. <laughs> oh. And then I remember also, this was the day Don James resigned, so... He didn't resign because of my book, but it was timely because my book came out and he resigned. Hmm. And Don James, this iconic, legendary Husky football coach, the dean of the Pac-10, resigned. And so they wanted me a live shot, Channel 4 live shot in front of Husky Stadium. We got Sam Farmer, author of Bitter Roses, live at noon. Coming up at noon, we've got the author of a book that took down the University of Washington football program. So I got out there and it was a, uh, uh, it was a camera person. So mm. I'm just talking into a camera, camera, which was unnerving for <laughs> me. And here I am about 20, 25, six, seven years old, something like that. And uh, I just got the earpiece in my ear and they come to me and they say, Sam Farmer, is there anything new you uncover in this book about the Husky scandal? I, I looked in the camera. I said, not really. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't get off fast enough. They're like, thank you very much. <laughs> I remember just drawing a complete blank. I just, not really. Not much. Just kind of pretty much a rewrite of whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, that, that must have done wonders for the books. Oh boy, they were selling the like hotcakes. Well, I went to one place. I went to one place, and um, it was on First Hill in Seattle. And I walked by, and my book was in the window of this bookstore. And I can't tell you what a heady experience that is to see your book. I walked in, and and I said, I just got to tell you, I wrote one of the books in your window. The one with the purple cover. I, I wrote that. And the woman said, oh, yes. She said, it's a very popular, very popular book. And I said, well, I can sign it because you sign it and they put a sticker mm. on it. Author signed. So I signed it and she put a sticker on it. And I said, uh, I can sign any copies you have in back or in the shelf. She said, it's our last copy. And I said, uh, now I'm just feeling like, wow, <laughs> wow, this is really cool. I said, uh, how many do you or how many did you start with? She said two. Oh, <laughs> I just say it's very popular. <laughs> I said, my mom's been by. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, it was uh, that was that was humbling. But it did get me propelled me on to my next job, which was at the San Jose Mercury News, covering the Raiders when the Raiders moved back there, and then got to the LA Times in two thousand. So you went from working the LA Times up to Seattle, San Jose Mercury News, and then back to the LA Times. Yes, but I was. You know, the first go round at the LA Times, I was, right. um, you know, lowest of the low guy on the totem pole. Coming back, you know, I had a good beat. I, mm. I initially started as the UCLA beat writer, but I never missed an NFL season. I picked, I picked up the NFL again that next season. So, so uh, I'm always fascinated in people's like second job because yeah, okay, so you get that first job in the business, you're like, all right, I'm kind of here. But then that second job is when you really try to establish yourself. That move up to Seattle, what kind of went into that? Yeah, well, uh, I had a girlfriend. Oh, okay, uh, who, that'll uh, do it. You know, it always goes back to uh, <laughs> uh, there was a girl, and she was going to law school. She'd gone to Occidental. She was going to law school uh, at University of Puget Sound, which is in Tacoma. And that was not the person who I wound up marrying. I um, uh, met my wife in Seattle, and uh, after that relationship had come and gone, and uh, um, so Paige was incredible, incredible coincidence meeting my wife. Um, uh, you know, I was I was in my um, I was giving notice in my apartment building, and she was up from L.A. with her friend Kathy, who had just taken a job in Seattle, and was signing papers in my apartment building, and. These two pretty girls come in, and I uh, struck up a conversation with Paige, who would become my wife, and and I said, "Hey, how long are you here?" She said, "I'm only here for three or four more hours." I said, "Well, let me walk you. You know, Kathy's going to meet with her new boss. Oh, let me walk you around the neighborhood, and we'll get a coffee." And so I did, and uh, you know, you could tell Kathy was like memorizing my face for America's Most Wanted. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, you're going to do what? And uh, so we just had a great connection, and I was in love with her when she left, and she thought uh, I got I got a nice guy friend. I was immediately putting the friends <laughs> up. But then I called her that next night, and we had a conversation, and then we um, really connected. But she said, uh uh, I said, what part of L.A. are you from on the phone call? Mm. And she said, uh, this little place near Pasadena, you've never heard of it. And I said, well, what's it called? She said, La Cunada. I said, where'd you go to high school? La Cunada High School. <laughs> what year did you graduate? She told me. And I I said, I graduated from La Cunada High School three <laughs> years before you did. I was a senior when you were a freshman. Totally. That's crazy. Un- yeah, which, which confirmed every fear I had that like the senior or the, the freshman girls didn't know who I was. <laughs> but I remember, we, and so for years after that, so we were a thousand miles away. We met and uh, didn't know that we went to high school together in L.A. Crazy. Um, it was crazy. And for years after that, we'd say, wait a second, you were at that party? I was at that party. I mean, we had that incredible, so it was sort of written in the stars with Paige, and, and, uh, it, which proved itself to be true because I could not have, uh, uh, she could have done better as a, you know, with, with, us, with a husband, but, but I certainly couldn't have done better with a wife. She's awesome. And so um, my father-in-law always says, uh, uh, you know, He'll hit a golf shot and he'll say, That's a son in law shot. And I said, What's that? And he said, Not as good as I wanted, but it'll do. 
That sounds like the name of your next book. Yeah. I'll kick my coverage by Sam Farmer, yes, right exactly. there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. All right. So then after Seattle, San Jose Mercury News. What important happens there that kind of propels you on? Well, um, just the writers I was around, the staff that we had, uh, you know, people who went on. Rick Buecher was there mm. and Clark Judge was there. And so some terrific, you know, Mark Purdy and Pedro Gomez and Mark Gonzalez and, and some really, really, Dave Tapps was a sports editor. Anyway, it was a, it was a sort of a, all-star group of, and I'm not counting myself hmm. in that, I'm just saying all-star group of reporters to learn from there, and uh, covering the Raiders, you know, and covering John Gruden and and, uh, and Joe Bugle years and the Mike White years, and, and just sort of starting off my NFL journey um, there was was terrific, and, um, and that was the biggest step probably in my career from uh, a 30,000 circulation paper to the San Jose Mercury News was the biggest step um, that sort of preceded my step from the Mercury News to the LA Times, which mm. was big. But the Mercury News was a good, was a good and successful big paper. Mm. So, um, you know, just the accumulated experience and knowledge and sources and, and everything um, was uh, invaluable to me. I ask all of the writers that I have on here because it kind of seems like the common thread of the, the people that go national, like LA Times, New York Times, all that stuff, is they're covering successful teams, teams that won a lot. How important do you think the Raiders' success at that time was to you getting more na- national publicity? I think that it helped to uh, have a team that was in the spotlight, mm. not necessarily successful because the Raiders only got successful by the time I left. In fact, they were a terrible team. I'd almost rather cover, I'd rather cover a winning team or a team that loses every week mm. than a team that's always sort of bouncing around 500. Those are the less interesting teams. But <laughs> with the with the Raiders, my dog is now coming in the house and scrambling and peeing on the floor, which happens. In the, <laughs> uh, uh, the Raiders were such a circus, um, and so sort of you know they're spinning out of control that it was classic covering them it was you know all the other teams in the league and the raiders and so and covering al davis was really fascinating too uh you know our relationship ran very hot and cold and it was in a in a funny way so yeah i think all that experience sort of but we underestimate the uh, the luck factor mm. in our careers. I got so lucky in so many terms in, in meeting the right people and getting the right opportunities. And it's easy to forget that when you sort of attribute it to your talent or whatever. Um, there's a lot of luck involved. And then I, I would imagine when you get to the L.A. Times and you're covering... Uh, really, you become a national writer then, right? Yeah, I was the national NFL writer. It was the best beat in the country. I could mm. whatever games I wanted to go to. Um, I, the league was very concerned about how it was perceived in Los Angeles without a team there. So I got incredible access. You know, I climbed Mount Rainier with Roger Goodell. I went to Europe with Paul Tagliabue. I was at Madden's house watching games. I was with Pete Carroll. Um, 
for a week had full access to all their meetings and everything. I, I was, I was with uh, at the officiating command center. I traveled for a week with officials. Um, I flew the Goodyear blimp. Hmm. Um, just all these incredible life experiences that, uh, you know, it was every week I was mm. getting to do something that was, that was unbelievable and not covering a team. And that really um, enabled me to distinguish myself. At that point, how much were you leaning on when you're getting started with the Times and you're doing these quirky stories and submitting to, to them? You're kind of doing that at, at a national level, yeah, covering yeah. the league. I mean, you still you still go back to some of those sort of qualities of, of uh, you know curiosity and um, you know trying to be innovative in the way that you approach stories and looking for ironies. I mean, ironies are such a huge driver when it comes to stories. What? Why is this different? What's the ironic element of this story that that sets it apart? So, yeah, I think you all you 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 work. Your career has sort of building blocks, and those were those were the early building blocks of my career, as as uh, you know, undistinguished as they might have been. <laughs> they were important for me, and it was important to work at small papers for me because there I would do everything. I would. We'd have a four-man staff, so I would draw up the pages and write the headlines and edit my own stories and make my own mistakes. And and it was about making mistakes and learning from mistakes. And those are the that's really where you grow. It's not from your successes; it's from your defeats. I think that you really create those building blocks, um, and the, the memorable moments are from the things you screwed up. And I would imagine your 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 family and all that stuff would would be like. So is your life like Chevy Chase's Fletch? And you'd have to be like, no, no, no. But it's kind of close, right? I guess you know what. That's one of my favorite movies, and and some of the some of the experience are are Fletch like, but uh, uh, you know, much more you know mundane in other parts. But but uh, yeah, there are lots of funny experiences, and, that, and sharing those with people, and uh, that's the. That's the best part of the job is sitting around with other reporters and swapping stories and laughing about things, mm. um, which beats being at a Super Bowl. Even though I enjoy covering games and, and meeting interesting people, it's the, the recounting of stories, which is really uh, the best part of the job. And I'm, I'm sure you've talked a lot about you know climbing Mount Rainier with with Goodell, but what feature have you done that's your favorite that maybe not be in like the overall bio, but is your favorite one that you've done? That's kind of one of those quirky kind of stories. Well, I mean, one of the things uh, you try to do is um, get a unique angle on stories. Tell a story. If you can tell an oft-told, oft-told story in a different way. Um, that's that's the holy grail. And so I remember uh, when Jerry Rice went in the Hall of Fame, I had to do a story on Jerry Rice. Well, you know, everybody's going to write a Jerry. There have been millions of words written on Jerry Rice, literally. Um, what new are you going to write about Jerry Rice? Well, I was able to find this guy, Ted Walsh, who was the assistant equipment manager for the 49ers during Jerry Rice's career there. And Ted was a left-handed uh, thrower. And so Ted, who's now the equipment manager for the Seattle Mariners, 
had this unique job, and that was throwing to Jerry Rice in warm-ups and on the sideline because Jerry Rice had to adjust to the different spin of the ball from right-handed Joe Montana to left-handed Steve Young. And so Ted Walsh threw more passes to Jerry Rice than anyone in history. And Ted Walsh was an incredible story. I mean, talking about how he and Jerry Rice became inseparable and it became the normal routine of Jerry Rice getting this anonymous guy, Ted Walsh, to throw to him uh, before and during games. And Ted was also the equipment manager. So he told me all about Jerry Rice's equipment peccadillos and how he wanted to wear his high school uh, shoulder pads and um, or he I, I think he would he would try on a new pair of shoulder pads every game that he'd want to try and um, he Jerry Rice Nike was a Nike athlete and you know Ted would tape the spats on Jerry Rice's shoes as people know tape the ankle down then around the shoes are called spats and around the laces tape around the laces well Nike wouldn't allow any of its athletes to spat because it covered up the swoosh mm. the only athlete it allowed to spat was jerry rice and so ted walsh became an expert at drawing the nike swoosh <laughs> and he said he could do it in the dark mm. and so i loved that story because it was a story on this guy that everybody on earth had written about but it was a story that nobody had mm. and um and so there's stories like those that really are memorable to me. So those are that's an example of a story I would stick out in my mind hmm. that wouldn't be on my in my epitaph or on my epitaph. <laughs> the Rams decide that they're coming back to LA. I'm sure Eric Dickerson called you to see if they were coming back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when did you first start to hear rumblings about that? And then how did you think that your job was going to change? Uh, well. You know, I guess I first started to hear rumblings. Jerry Jones mentioned it to me mm. and uh, said, you know, you should take this one seriously. There had been, I'd covered literally two dozen false starts. But when Stan Kroenke started really getting serious about L.A., to me, that had a different quality to it. And... When he turned his attention to the Hollywood Park site, even though they were trying to get stuff done in St. Louis, I knew that that, that would be the site that they'd wind up with mm -hmm. um, or, or was the most logical site. And it was the one that Al Davis had pursued in the mid-90s. I knew that when a team came, it would change my, would, it would change my job. But I felt like I was ready for that. I was ready after... Uh, you know, 15 years, 16 years of covering the league with no team. I thought L.A. was ready. I'm ready to cover a team. And then they flooded the engine with two teams. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so it was, uh, I, you know, each year it became a running joke among NFL reporters that every year at the State of the League address at the Super Bowl, I would ask Roger Goodell, my... NFL, my variation on the NFL in LA story. <laughs> and uh, it almost became a, a situation where I'd say Sam Farmer, LA Times, and then sit down and Roger <laughs> would start talking about LA. Uh, so I needed a capstone question mm. when, when I knew I just couldn't leave it after all those years of asking the question. So I stood up 
after the Rams and Chargers uh, were heading for L.A. And I said, Roger, for the last 20 years, the question has been, when is L.A. going to get an NFL franchise? And I want to ask you now, when is L.A. going to stop getting NFL franchises? <laughs> <laughs> so that got a, got a little laugh, and that was the capstone on my on my annual question. So that was kind of fun. And then my final question for you, you, you go into the Hall of Fame this year, the Dick McCann Award winner. Do you get the knock on the door as a journalist? I did. I, I get uh, the figurative knock on the door. I got a call from the president of the Pro Football Writers Association, Bob Glauber, and simultaneously, my parents got a call from David Baker, the president of the Hall of Fame. Mm. And so that was really touching. And um, so, and David Baker asked asked my parents, "Are you going to have any more kids?" <laughs> 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 my dad's eighty five, and my mom just turned eighty. So, so uh, they're pretty. I mean, odds are. Uh, I was the last in the line, but but I thought it was a pretty cute question. And um, I will say that I was I decided to do everything at the Hall of Fame. You know, they said you can do as much or as little as you want. And so I did the parade on Saturday morning at the Hall of Fame, and it was neat. And, and they have you know Corvettes and fancy sports cars and everything uh, that you sit in the back of all the gold jackets. And I was sitting in the back of a car, and and uh, so. Beautiful Mercedes convertible, sports car convertible. And and uh, I got in and it was like, it was very nice on the outside, but I get in there like all these paper cups and newspapers on the floor and everything. And it's this guy's car, Curly, his name was. He took off his hat and he said, you know, you can see why they call me, call me Curly. He was bald. And he said, I've done it for about eight years. And I said, we got to a lull in the parade. And I said, Curly, um, You've done this for eight years. Who else have you driven in this parade? And he said, ah, nobody important. I never get anybody important. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to break your streak, Curly. <laughs> so, but it was really fun. It was a very, very special moment in my career and great for my family as well. Great stuff from Sam there. You can follow him on Twitter at L.A. Times Farmer, phenomenal stuff there. I mean, could I? I honestly can't thank this guy more enough. For he welcomed me into his home. The guy's the real deal. Talented writer as can be. Loved hearing stories from his childhood, growing growing up in the career, all of that stuff. The hijinks, all of it. Sam, unbelievable guy. Plenty of ways to get in contact with this show. You can follow me on Twitter at Denny underscore Gallagher. You can follow Later Podcast on Instagram or, hey, shoot us an email, laterpodcast at gmail.com. It's all there. In the meantime, let's cue up the boys from Tom, Dick, and Harry. And until next time, later. Later.